Welcome to the February 14th edition of the Hyperallergic Weekly Podcast, Art Movements. This edition, I've invited two of our staff members, Jasmine Weber, our news editor, as well as Seth Rodney, one of our critics as well as editors, to come in and talk art. Because, you know, we don't really always get a chance to do this, and certainly the public doesn't get to listen to us talk about art because we have a lot of conversations in the office. So it's a snow day here in New York, and we thought this would be a nice day to sort of have a casual conversation. So, Jasmine, I'm going to give you the first opportunity to start. What are you excited by art-wise right now in New York, or in general? So, uh, Sadia Hartman is coming out with her new book, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments. So that's being released next week on um, February 19th, I believe. And so she just published some excerpts from the book in The New Yorker. So what are you excited about specifically? So basically what she did was peruse a bunch of government and and personal archives searching for photos of anonymous specifically black women and she's writing a speculative history fiction piece about the lives that these women might have lived and and sort of connecting all of these ideas about body autonomy and sort of the great migration and the the experiences that might have occurred to one woman or to many right that's really that sounds pretty awesome oh great how about you Seth what are you excited about right now I'm potentially excited about the retrospective show at the new museum of Nari Ward's work oh yeah particularly because I've written about Nari Ward a few times and I've seen him around he's one of those artists who when you put together a show like I don't know Soul of the Nation let's say or the 2020 show that took place at the Carnegie Museum of, of Art a couple of mm-hmm. years ago. He's someone I run into regularly. Right. And I, I know, also know him personally, and, and that sort of adds dimension to my sense of what his work does. And I think it's fair to say, in my experience, that he's an artist who is more hit than miss, but there are a couple of misses. Right. I'm really interested in being able to see this sort of long arc of his work. And I think that will provide me more of a sense of what his sort of, what's the word, trajectory has been. Yeah, wow, that, that is exciting. So mine's going to be a little less serious than yours. But, uh, you know, the thing I'm excited about right now is this week, seeing all the hate from L.A. for the art fairs. Because, you know, I think with the landing of Freeze, they finally have a behemoth of an art fair. And I think L.A. people can now hate on them just as much as New Yorkers. So (laughs) and Miami, Miami. And so I'm kind of excited about that. I know. I know that's not very nice, but it's funny. But Um, uh, (laughs) but L.A. LA people are going to have actually more sort of reason to have animals about that because for us at least and probably in and for Miamians it's relatively easy to get to all the venues but in LA you're going to be driving all over town you're going to be stuck even. on the 405 for hours I, can't, I, can't, I cannot wait for all those it's going to be absolutely absurd right. so I can't can't wait okay a couple of news things before we get into some so we're going to go through different topics now this one Jasmine I'm going to direct at you first the Andy Warhol Burger King commercial at the Super Bowl. I mean, what are you thinking about that? For those who don't know, the Super Bowl this year, there was a commercial, a Burger King commercial featuring Warhol eating a burger. Is that correct, Jasmine? Did I characterize it? Um, so I, I essentially just think that the Burger King Andy Warhol 
commercial was just a really expensive mistake targeted at the completely wrong audience. Mm -hmm. I think that Andy Warhol's work is extremely recognizable, but I don't think that to the majority of this the Super Bowl audience, his face would be explicitly recognizable, nor would it be a selling point to buy a Whopper. But <laughs> but I'm going to push back on that. I'm guessing a big corporation like Burger King did their research. If you're going to spend millions of dollars, you know, I always say Warhol is the last artist that when you tell like your grandmother or some, you're like, can you name an artist? It's like Warhol is the one that they can name, you know, like, you know, and there's no one else. Yeah. That's a good point. I mean, I think that Warhol's work is legible to a wider audience than a lot of other artists. I like that you use legible. That was good. (laughs) Um, As as opposed to crappy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, wait, wait, wait. I'm going to give the microphone to Seth now. Let's hear you. What, What is it about the crappy? (laughs) <laughs> well, I think that maybe, and, and I, I love the po- politic nature of Jasmine's uh, description, uh, but I would say, I suppose, because I don't like Warhol's work at all, uh, that this Campbell's soup cans thing really did kind of permeate the culture. So I'm going to push back a little and say that the one thing that bothers me about Warhol is he kind of gave permission to artists to become for lack of a better term, starfuckers, and essentially do whatever they want with no repercussions, commercialize as much as they want. I mean, there's like, you know, a, a, you know, and I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, the Whitney Museum's exhibition, right? It's like we the whole tear gas issue we've been writing about and Jasmine, you helped, uh, you know, of course, bring to the attention of everyone. I don't think that's a coincidence because, you know, he doesn't request anything of his audience. Do you know? So if you were like a dictator who had killed 25 million people last year, like you could have a Warhol on your work and it doesn't even interrogate you. Like, you know, meaning not that a work necessarily does it, but like it doesn't do anything. It still makes you feel good about that image. It doesn't do any. So what were you going to say? That's right. I think that Warhol's, the majority of his work gives people permission to be vacant to be uh, not intellectually or um, emotionally or uh, spiritually, let's say, engaged. And it kind of wholesale gave permission for artists to chase celebrity and to actually measure themselves by in terms of their success by how much they grasped rode that bowl of celebrity and i find that that's really i find that that's really not what's the word not this, yes exhausting <laughs> and also just petty Ugh. it's just really tired and petty that's that's not the art scene that i right. live in well you all. know it's like i always say the other thing is like interview magazine as much as people seem to like it i think that's like it was the most repulsive part of his legacy because you know it was like oh let's cut out anybody critical and just have celebrities talk to each other is like literally the worst strain of our culture you know, I have a small interview story actually, because I because I interned Ooh. there. No, you didn't. I did. Oh wow! Uh, when Ingrid Shishi was there, and someone has sent, I forget who it was to interview. I think it was actually the one of the higher up, um, one of the editors had been sent out to interview a new actor on the scene who people were just starting to hear about, mm-hmm. whose name was Brad Pitt. 
<laughs> and on the audio, I've which I had to transcribe, there were these long yawning silences where the guy would ask Pitt something, ask him a, a question. That was relatively probing. And Pitt apparently, like, had some sort of cognitive dissonance going on in his head. Like, he would literally take, like, 30, 40 seconds to answer a question. Like, he's worse than Shaq. Like, I don't, I mean, he's ridiculous. And I just thought, this is, what, how is this guy even alive? How is he able to, like, Well, maybe walk? he was being fed the answers. Oh, Who knows? God. You know, was, at that point, you kind of wonder. What I do you think, Jasmine? I was disgusted. Um, I think that, we don't want to embitter you. Like we are clearly <laughs> jaded with the art world. Um, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna bring you there, Jasmine. No, I mean, I mean, even in high school, I remember not being a fan of Warhol. I remember seeing the soup cans at MoMA and being like, "This is what all of this hype has been about," mm. and and just not getting it and thinking that like, oh, maybe in person they'll wow me. Um, and they just kind of didn't. But I think that Warhol, because so much of what he did was just copies, it was super easy for other artists. I mean, I actually had a I had a friend the other day. We were looking through on, I believe, Architectural Digest did a profile of two or three of the Kardashians' houses Ugh. to look at the photos. <laughs> And we were talking about how bad the art is, to bring in celebrities again, how bad the art is in Kylie Jenner's house. Right. And she has so many Warhols yeah. all throughout the house. And then there's also a series of those Damien Hirst butterfly prints inside oh, of, of the hearts. And my friend, who really knows nothing about art and will admit that like right. gladly, said, who is this wannabe Warhol? It's even worse. <laughs> and <laughs> like, I think that I think that Warhol's legacy like begets bad, famous, really expensive art yeah. to be labeled as genius and to label men who steal ideas or regurgitate the same boring ideas that they have throughout their whole careers to be labeled as geniuses for supposedly rigging a system that's already rigged in their favor. So right. they're not doing much. Totally, totally. Woo, that that was juicy. Okay. <laughs> okay, next one. Uh, Jasmine, you, you wrote about this. The Venice, the Venetian tourist tax. That was actually Zachary Okay, Small Zachary. But you edited that. that. Yes. You were you were you were shepherding that. So Tell us a little bit about that. What's the yes. deal? Why are they doing that? So the city, because it is, of course, surrounded by water on all sides, has had, in the wake of devastating climate change, a lot of flooding in the past few years. And so they're instating a new policy for people who are walking through the city to pay between, in U.S. dollars, it's between like $3 and eleven fifty. Hmm. And so that changes depending on the season, depending on how busy it is. Uh, it's I got it. yep. kind of like peak hours on the train. Sure. Um, and so it's going to be instated just 10 days before um, the Venice Biennale, which... For the audience that is able to buy a ticket to Italy to go to this fair is probably a, a nominal deal. is probably a nominal right. amount. And any, I think yeah. any idea how they're gonna collect that? 
So that's the one thing that's very perplexing to me. It seems as though the Italian government right now is a bit of a mess as they go through. (laughs) (laughs) Evergreen. As they go through this this shift towards a populist government who are who are sort of gatekeeping Italian culture in a bunch of different ways, but definitely in the arts. Yeah. It's it's sort of a step that was made without planning. a full government. <laughs> with with not much planning and then also without a full government consensus. Certain Italian policymakers have spoken out against it. Yeah. Sounds a little too late. Yeah. Too little too late, I should say. Yeah, I do think that this city being as historic as it is, it does make sense for them to need to protect themselves as the environment is changing and as flooding is going to become an even more serious problem over the next few years. So I'm not even entirely upset with the decision. I mean, people are going and spending like 100 euros to ride totally. on a gondola. So yeah, yeah. $3 to go to the city is, is, is a pretty nominal amount. Totally. Is it going to stop you from going to Venice, uh, Seth? Well, I haven't been to Venice in like... I'm not sure. I want to say I want to say around figure like ten years, but I'm I could be making that up. It's been a while, and in fact, when I thought about this story, I flashed back on when I was last in Venice, and I flashed back on reading some account, and he talked about how sort of pathetic the Venice Biennale sort of hobnobbing and schmoozing can be, especially for those who go there to work, right. because it was a writer who described a scene where a writer and a curator who are friends are going to try to you know, get in and see all the shows, and they're in their like regular street clothes, and at some point there's a gala event, and she has to crouch in some sort of corner off an alley so they could change because they didn't have time to go back to the hotel. And the whole scene just sounded, the way he wrote it, the scenario sounded really pathetic and just... You're desperate. They're kind of aspirationally. <laughs> well, you're desperate. talking about the Venice Biennale, though. right? This is true. Yeah, but made me. Think I mean, that that how, city takes it over. It right, takes over the it, city. Yeah. It, right, it, it precisely does. But it made me think of how much I don't want to go back to Venice and experience that. So, and if I were to go any other time besides the Venice Biennale, please. <laughs> That's great. I love that. Okay, so now we're moving on to the MoMA's new plans. So. They're closing down this summer and going to reopen, and it looks like they're kind of trying to supplement their canon, uh, for lack of a better term. Jasmine? So Antoine Sargent, who we spoke to in a past podcast, made a tweet that I think sums it up pretty well. So they're undergoing a $400 million renovation supposedly to support their decision to diversify their, their collections. And so he basically said that he finds it really hard to believe that they would allot $400 million specifically for this goal. It seems more of a convenient excuse for right. a renovation. But he's happy that Betty Saar is getting her getting her due at the yeah. museum. And that yeah. pretty much sums up exactly how I feel about it. Yeah. I think that... It's a noble cause, and I'm also, I actually am really excited to know that the Studio Museum is going to be having a pretty strengthened partnership with them, right. um, because I have missed the museum since they closed last winter. 
but I don't have these astronomical hopes for what they're going to do with the museum when it reopens. I'm surprised Melma hasn't pushed Thelma Golden yet. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> pushed her to do what? Poached her. Pushed oh, her. Poached like her. brought her over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, she'd be great running Moma PS1 or something too. Yeah, or yeah, even yeah. the main museum. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, makes, that makes sense. I, I do want to affirm what Jasmine and, and what Antoine have put forward. I think that it sounds like a grand plan. And I think that the notion of having diversified curatorial strategies, right. audiences, and museum boards, boards being a really key issue here. Which um, we're not seeing yet. Right. Is it ascendant in the moment. It's, right. it's, it's, it's something that's on a lot of people's minds. Um, people have been saying it now. And it really, it feels like a chorus is starting to form around this idea that museums are not neutral. And that that non-neutrality has to be confronted. Right. It, it has to be it has to be acknowledged publicly. Right. So there's a way in which MoMA's trying to ride that wave as opposed to being swamped by it. Right. But I have not heard any sort of concrete plans from them about how they're going to approach doing this. What are they going to do? And besides giving people like Betty Sarr a show, great. Betty Sarr is absolutely deserving of that. But I have to say that there's a way in which that seems like such an obvious move to me. Like, oh, Betty, yeah, like Betty I know. that's not, honestly, like, honestly, honestly, that's not really challenging work. No. It's just, it's just not. And I want to say that it's a nice, safe choice of a very respectable one. That's right. But what happens at, what happens after Betty Starr? That's right. Like, where, where does it go? And, and yeah. in what ways are they planning on specifically and explicitly manifesting this idea that the only way that a museum can really go forward is to really find ways to welcome audiences that have been historically underserved. Right. That's the question. Yeah. And for me, the diversity question is also like, I'd like to see a little bit of a diversity in terms of economic as well. Like, why is everything such a luxury art object? Like the design department has been doing a much better job bringing in things that are part of the culture that aren't just expensive. And I feel like we're just back into the expensive object thing. And I'm like, come on, the most interesting things are not just expensive objects. So it's a shame because, you know, the early history of the Museum of Modern Art included integrating folk art and other things in a very early and ex kind of experimental compared to now way. And that's kind of all gone. And we're back to the luxury object in the gallery kind of thing. Or if not, then part of the market system, you know, that's sort of like even when it's relational aesthetics or something like that, there's always some aspect of it that seems to emerge. Yeah, and I think that there's a way in which uh, MoMA's management, the particular people at the top, I'm blanking on the name of the president now. but Glenn Lowry? Glenn Lowry the, the, was, yep. for, for a long time, Director. he may still yep. be the highest paid uh, yep. president in the museum system, at least in the States. And it, 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 just, it just always felt like I they, hear they pay his kids' tuitions at schools. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, and he has an apartment in Museum Tower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I know <laughs> the, I, I've read that the apartment is, is subsidized by the, um, by the organization as well. But here's the thing. Um, they've always struck me as being the kind of institution that is like along the lines of Hans Hacker's searching critique. It's always been the kind of institution that changes social capital into economic capital and vice versa. Right. It is for me a huge 
and I hope it's not too fine a point to, to make, but it's a huge money laundering operation. You turn social capital. Ooh, you went there. Yes. That's, <laughs> that's how MoMA reads to me. I mean, uh, they, they I bet you they have a lot of Warhols. <laughs> <laughs> and, and let me also be clear that, that MoMA does put on this, uh, mount some excellent exhibitions now and again. But, you know, they don't have to be sort of mutually exclusive things. Right. What do you think, Jasmine? What would surprise you if you if MoMA opened their doors when they open their doors in the fall? What would you see that would actually surprise you and be like, wow, something's different? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe that they have a full day long window of free programming. Hmm. Um, and I think that this partnership with the Studio Museum is so interesting. And they've partnered for many years on different things. But I think that MoMA actually has a lot to learn from the Studio Museum in the mm -hmm. sense of the Studio Museum was able to keep its doors open with a much lower admission fee, despite the fact that their donations are, are nominal compared to what MoMA receives. And I think that along with that, that lowered admission fee, they were also able to offer free admission every single Sunday. And so I think that even just in terms of those economics, I find it hard to believe that MoMA wouldn't be able to institute something like that. I find it right. hard to believe that they need to charge over $20 to enter the museum. And like I said, I could be wrong. There might be a full free day, but I think that the admission fee itself says a lot. More free days would be nice. Yes. You know, particularly for a lot of people who cannot afford going to that museum. You know, I don't know. How about Yousef? What would change? What do you think would be a real sign of change at an institution like MoMA? I think if the board of directors uh, looked more like the general population, I think that would be huge for me. I think having a curatorial staff that's also more reflective of the people we know, right. people, um, you and Jasmine and the rest of the hypologic staff know exist in the art scene that we work in. Right. MoMA... Um, historically hasn't been that kind of institution. No. But if it were to make changes in, in those respects, I would be surprised pleasantly mm -hmm. and, um, and would support that. Yeah. No, I, I think those are all great. I mean, I, I agree. I think more free days, that's a huge thing I would really think would show that they're really trying to change you know, in a serious way. I think the other thing is giving more opportunities to emerging curators in mm -hmm. a way, mm -hmm. but like in a real, not just like those tried and true through the established channels that are sort of like churned out. We all know who those are, you know, mm -hmm. in those, those schools, those schools are mm -hmm. exactly, you know, like an open call for proposals right. and have somebody go through them and actually go, Hey, you know what? Maybe we're not doing our job and maybe we should sort of, I would love to see that something open that way would be really inspiring to me. So now I don't want to linger on this next point too much, but the museum of the Bible CEOs, the dumb remark, I have to read it for those of you who don't know, because I just like to get your reactions to it. So the CEO of the museum of the Bible, which is the organization created in DC with Hobby Lobby money. And it's been kind of, you know, a lot of problems around. But he recently told the Washington Times, the CEO, whose last name is McKenzie, we'll read the story and then we'll study the material around it. Archaeological excavations have found the stone that was used of 1.5 to 2 pounds and will review some ancient texts about life at that time and watch a video that shows how a sling could be accurate. 
Mr. McKenzie said. This is not an assignment that says this is what we believe. So essentially, he's suggesting that archaeologists have found the stone David used to slew. Is that the word? Slay. Slay. (laughs) I like slew, but okay, we'll use slay (laughs) since it's grammatically correct. Um, Slay Goliath. Uh, I mean... Well, I want to say the thing that popped up for me in reading the story is that I went to a Christian school when I was a kid. My parents were that committed to my religious education, my and my sisters. So I went to one of those schools where this kind of conversation was typical. Oh, really? Yeah, typical. I mean, okay. it was it was the Bible. It was perme- our com- our study was permeated by the Bible through and through. So I had I actually had a terrible education through high school, junior oh. high and high school. It was, it was awful. But one of the things that is really scary about an institution like this, like this Museum of the Bible, that has as much cultural weight as it has, yeah. is when it gets it this wrong and when the CEO is really committed to getting it this wrong regularly. Like this is his, this is his thing, right? That, that he can just sort of name an object as being, I mean, it's very much the story of this sort of divine intervention into in the minds of Christians that took place when the people who wrote the Bible wrote it. Right. right? The idea that I grew up with was that they were divinely inspired. So That's like right. every yeah. single comma, every single jot and tittle, as they would say, is in the right place. I mean, and that kind of thinking is just not thinking. So did this trigger you? I mean, like this must have felt familiar. It felt familiar. It, I mean, it doesn't trigger me. I just, I feel like it's it's a way for us, and there are lots of institutions that do this now, and especially in U.S. culture, is one of those institutions that essentially dumbs us down. It flogs this notion that other secular institutions don't know the truth, but you can right. if you just, just listen to us. Well, so the Museum of the Bible has gotten in trouble on a, <laughs> a, number, number, of of, a number of instances mm-hmm. or showing forged scraps that they said were from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which scholars repeatedly said were almost impossible to have been from the scrolls. And so the museum sort of maintained it, showed them regardless, and then and then later on published um, Michael Press, who writes for Hyperallergic pretty often, wrote something about how irresponsible that was right. um, to display these as fact and then and then to pretend that you've carried out these thorough investigations to prove yourself wrong, to sort of justify this this morally corrupt thing that you've done. And I think that it's really disappointing to see an institution in D.C. that seems legit, that looks legit because it's backed by some serious money from the owner of Hobby Lobby craft store. And I think that that is really disappointing because a lot of people are going to come in, see these things at, at face value and don't question it. And that's the nature of a lot of people when they walk into a museum you believe that everything you're seeing is fact and that's right we've seen how dangerous that can be in terms of the way that it's portrayed people of color in the united states people across the world in in terms of informing public opinion to believe incorrect things and to have prejudiced beliefs that's right you know the thought experiment i was going to play with you guys is you know what if a contemporary christian artist took a stone and did that and said, this is the work. And then they did an exhibit around it. I mean, I think as the contemporary art world, we often forget like 
what if all the strategies contemporary art uses were turned? And I mean, I think we're seeing that a little bit in the sort of the alt-right, like where they're using the same kind of 1960s outrage politics that the left used, right? And I'm like, what if an artist turned around and said, this is the stone, and they did a whole exhibit? I mean, there was there would be nothing. We'd be like, oh, it's inquiring the idea of authenticity. <laughs> you know, it's like, and I wonder, maybe that's where they're going, because there's a lot of contemporary art-looking things there, you know, in that museum itself. I don't know, Jasmine, does that bother you? Does that, like, does that make you more curious? What do you think? I think that the interesting thing about that is, is again, re- revisiting this idea of, like, legibility and who's Mm -hmm. interested in what and what the primary audience of the Museum of the Bible would think of a contemporary artist doing this as their practice, whether or not it would even be of interest. And just wondering, I don't, and this is, this is mainly speculation on my part, is that I wonder if it would even get enough recognition outside of criticism. Got it. And that's not to say, I mean, we can see if it ever happens because it might, I might be completely wrong, but I would be shocked if the same public who is interested in this idea of like a biblical education in public schools would, would ever even look at the work of a contemporary artist because they're marketed so differently. And, and returning back to that idea of legibility. um, Yeah. I mean, it's possible. You never know. Maybe because it doesn't speak to their faith yet. They're not interested. I mean, I was in a taxi ride from Salt Lake City to Park City when I went to Sundance recently. And the man who was not involved in art at all, he was like, my favorite artist is this. And he said the name and I looked it up and it turned out to be this very like Mormon artist doing kind of traditional looking work. But I mean, it was fascinating. But I was like, but it clearly spoke to him and his faith. You know, in a way that I was like, oh, I've never heard of this person before. That's actually a super valid point and really interesting. It really is, I think, a lot about marketing and about, I mean, it also kind of returns to when Trump had that painting of of all of the presidents, all of the Republican presidents at like a poker table or something. Oh, yeah. Different art speaks to different demographics. And like, I definitely do think that like, the bubble that I'm in lets me forget that sometimes. And just because this art isn't hanging in the moment doesn't mean that it's actually right. not far more popular or well-known than a lot of the things that I would consider to be well-recognizable artworks. Totally. What do you think, Seth? I think that part of the... Um, I really don't like using the term bubble. I know, because it sort of makes sense that everyone isn't in a bubble. And the precisely. truth is, most people are precisely. in their own bubble. That's right? Precisely. I mean, we live in social circles where we, we, we are members of particular tribes. But, okay, so for the circle that I inhabit, one of the things that is a hallmark of that circle is that we're really interested in being critical about the ways we look at the world as opposed to going to art to merely have morals or worldviews confirmed and affirmed. I think that ultimately the kind of art that tends to appeal to those with deeply held religious beliefs is precisely the kind of art that affirms them. Mm-hmm. And I'm just not interested in that. I, I am actually fundamentally interested in difference. And I think that this is precisely why I don't see someone someone from that camp coming up with that kind of strategy, that kind of meta-discursive strategy, right. because then they'd be talking about, they'd be having a whole other conversation. And I don't see them having that with That's a, a, really, a really re- deeply religious audience. That's a good, really good point. Okay, now the final one. I wasn't expecting that one to take so, but that was really interesting. Thanks for that. 
Anybody have anything else they want to bring up? I think we're wrapping up. Anything? You're dying. Any jokes? Any <laughs> observations in the in the New York art world from their vantage point here in uh, New York? Well, I was at this party on Saturday um, at um, Tom Finkelpearl's house, and I was hanging out with Sanford Biggers. Yep. And with Clifford Owens, and at some point. Clifford, I think I think there was a there was yeah there was a person with a phone and Clifford said oh you want let's take a picture of all three of us and so he's in the middle and Sanford's on the end I'm on the end and we and we kind of we have arms around each other and he's like yeah man black is beautiful baby black is beautiful I just want to end on that note <laughs> beautiful so there we are black is beautiful a special thanks to Mark Pritchard of Warp Records for providing the music to this week's episode. I'm Harag Bartanyan, editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperlogic. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week. <laughs>